0: Domestic and family violence is a serious issue facing all cultures and societies, but are we helping people in the best way? Today's guest has been working in the field for over 30 years, helping communities, women, children, and young people find support, shelter, and outreach. She challenges the concept of what a refuge is and what it can be. Welcome to With Not For, a podcast from the Centre for Inclusive Design. My name is Manisha Amin, speaking to you from the lands of the Gadigal people here in Sydney, Australia. And my fabulous guest today is Irina Awena. She's a leader in campaigning against domestic violence, the CEO of Newman's Women's Centre, which started off as Gosnell's Refuge and is also now known as Staric, providing an integrated service for women and children. ARENA is committed to increasing the overall well-being and safety of individuals, families and communities, both Indigenous communities as well as those that are non-Indigenous. Welcome, ARENA. Thank you, Anisha. Look, it's fabulous to speak to you today, and you've done so much work over an extended period of time. When you first started working in family and domestic violence back in the 1980s, my understanding is that the approach was very different to the sort of service delivery that we see now.
1: Back in the 80s, this is where um, refugees, you know, were struggling and um, basically just provided crisis accommodation and advocacy in terms of helping women for to secure housing or through family court, all those sort of advocacy-type roles. That was what they did back in the 80s. And it was a really strong movement in those days. And you had a lot of – and I can say this – Back in the day, I was a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, uh, 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 what do you call it, a socialist feminist <laughs> who came from a strong Christian background, so it didn't quite mix in those days. And it's where I actually grew and started to understand the political nature of family and domestic violence, you know, sexism, race, institutional racism, all those things. But it, and I was only 22 then, Wow. So I was, um, oh, 23, sorry, going into 24. And um, it was, you know, and I came from a solid background, a, a safe background, you know, and background where, you know, you had a father and a mother. And, you know, although, you know, things weren't the best at home because they were trying to uh, merge into a, well, I'm going to just say this, an alien culture, you know, um, living in New Zealand, coming from Samoa. And being told as a child, you know, leave those white ideas at school. And when you come home, you're Samoan. So that influenced me also when I was in the, when I started this, in that I had to leave behind a lot of my attitude and ways of doing things and look at what because we had I really pushed for a strong representation of women from different cultures um indigenous women because they're the women I could see that were the most disadvantaged you know in terms of um uh, the race the prejudice around trying to find housing um, and just being a Client of the shelter when their kids went to school and their kids would be identified as those kids from the refuge, or because they were poor, or you know because of what was happening in their home. So this really made me realize that you know our our whole sector was was basically having to put up with a lot of the the uh, prejudices you know around women and children poverty um food insecurity you know all those sort of things uh employment for women we we had it in a nutshell and experienced in the shelter so at that time for me the focus was really you know um listening to what women needed to move forward what did um what workers skills workers needed to be able to be the best support for families that came through, but not just the women themselves, because in those days it was the women. Get the women sorted, children will come after, whereas my attitude was get the family as a whole sorted in terms of the children, give them a voice, understand what they're going through, and that. And in those days the, they were called child workers. Child workers were in the back Women's shelter right. workers were in the front because the women, the refuge workers were doing the important work and the and the, uh, children's workers were just, you know, looking after child-minding the child minding, you know, the children that were coming through. Whereas I saw it as they were equally important and further down the track later on um, when we had more money available, I actually turned it around where the child workers were getting more money than the refuge workers through their pay packet. So, you know, because that's the only way you can bring in some major changes and shift the whole culture around the importance of children, making sure they had their voice. Because we we know in the area of family domestic violence, it's the children that end up looking after each other and after the younger children, and especially if they come from a a culturally and linguistically diverse um, background where English, you know, is not um, spoken in the home, it tends to be the children that have to advocate and speak on behalf of the mother. So all those sort of things, there were all the challenges way back in the 80s, you know, and so um, it was it was difficult for me as well as coming as a Polynesian young woman because mm. people would come to the door and assume that I was the cleaner or you know one of the workers so that say oh, can i speak to the manager please and i go yes and i'll go oh no no i mean someone in charge and i go yes, yes. <laughs> you know, like, and it's, it was you know all those sort of things back in the 80s and that we had to challenge. And also because, you know, shelter workers, refuge workers, we were the poor cousins, the poor cousins in the welfare sector.
0: You were in your very early 20s and you moved all the way out to the Pilbara for those people who are not in Australia. um, It's quite a remote area of Australia. So as a young woman, as a Samoan, you know, how was it and why did you make this choice?
1: Oh, okay. I have to say, I have to say that... um, Oh, I also, I married young, so I married a white South African Jew who, who was a really strong advocate, you know, for, and he was heavily involved with the ANC, you know. So, right. Um, so, yeah, and so we were both, so even that was a challenge because his parents yes, were... <laughs> English stock, and his parents were lovely, but they had to remind him that if we had children, they weren't going to be white. (laughs) So it was, yes, I think with those cultural challenges, even in, you know, our relationship. But because we were really... We fought for the, what we called, you know, we fought for the underdogs, what was not unfair. So, yeah, I started my journey in the welfare sector in Port Hedland as a, you know, young woman um, in um, before I came to Perth and started up Steric Services.
0: And so you actually started up the women's shelter at that. You know, it's, it's quite an entrepreneurial thing to do really um, way back then. How did you decide to do that?
1: There was a group of dedicated uh, women politicians and um, council uh, staff got together and um, uh, got funding. It was only a small amount of funding to get the shelter together. So they actually got it built, a purpose-built five-bedroom, brand-new shelter, and, um, yeah, employed me to just, with this empty house, to get it going get the staff, just get it up and running in in Gosnells.
0: And whereabouts is Gosnells?
1: South East Metro of Perth.
0: Right. And so what was that like? I'm really interested in this notion of walking into worlds that you um, talk about, Arena, and, you know, moving from your islander culture to New Zealand and then again to Australia. What do you think some of the strengths are that were brought out because of that?
1: I think um, essentially, and, and and I guess because having to walk in two worlds, um constantly reminded by my father every time I came home from school, because I come home with these bright ideas, my father would constantly be telling me, remember who you are, remember, you know, that you're someone, you you know, you're you you know, constantly looking at our mind and our heart, you know, in terms of the psychological, emotional, spiritual, physical stuff around, the whole thing of being a Polynesian and being a Polynesian, and because, you know, also my parents were strong Christians, you know. Um, so basically the Protestant work ethic, God, family, <laughs> and 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 you know, your um Work so absolutely, yeah, that's sort of you know, and so um and then becoming a you know a back in in the day, you know, strong socialist feminist, and also when I um, married Mark, who was a um atheist. <laughs> That was all right around. It was all around. It was it was um just really interesting, those those all those different lenses on 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 what I thought about things. But the most important thing was that people that I respected and understood were people were all the different cultures that we've worked with in our organization. A lot of a lot of agencies thought we were either an indigenous organization or that we were uh, we were uh, um, culturally and linguistically diverse. Those were our two target groups. Well, we were. We were mainstream. But we focused on those two, uh, on Indigenous women and Cord women, because that's where we could see where it was lacking. That's where we could see there was a lot of issues.
0: And so what were some of the initiatives that you started that were really different to some of the things that were done at that time?
1: We had an outreach worker. Outreach, no one did outreach, but I knew it was important that if you want to stop that whole door revolving, where, you know, they could get as much support and and everything in, and access, lots of stuff while they were in the shelter, but when they left, a lot of, you know, they don't have the support structures there, you know, there's no staff there, there's no, they can attend some programs, but, you know, They tended to, yeah, they were just left isolated. So I knew it was really important if you want to continue that growth, you want to continue providing that support for her to be able to, the family, to make it out in the community, then you needed they needed to be uh, uh, locked in, you know, provide some outreach services until they felt strong about themselves and they felt that they could, you know, move forward.
0: That's really interesting, some of those things that you've done in terms yep. of really focusing on um, called an Aboriginal women and, and obviously their families. I know that domestic violence is a really complex issue. One of the things I'm really interested in is what is the mindset often of people who are not involved in this sector and what are some of the things that, you know, the myths around how women and children want to be treated, particularly from these communities that are different mm-hmm. to what we might think? It's, it's, you
1: know, and again, no one wants to talk about this, but we need to. And it's about, you know, it's about that whole institutional racism, that, that prejudice that's around, the, you know, indigenous and called, you know, peoples. And, like, you know, I experience it quite a bit. So I have a daughter who's fair, blue eyes, uh, fair skinned. And so when I had to go and rent a new place, um I had to make sure she was in her school uniform. Um and then I also had to make sure my car was parked out in front, my work vehicle that was really flashed. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I two right. things and then go in there and make sure that you know that I was articulate and straight to the point you know, to just get a rental. So I'm, you know, so it was hard for me. Can you just imagine what it was like for women in shelter, women experiencing domestic violence, women who don't feel confident, women who are suffering, you know, know, and trying to make it out on their own, particularly if they, you know, have not uh, been able to, you know, stand on their own two feet.
0: How have government agencies and other organisations responded to your approaches?
1: I think that there's much more awareness. I think that now because, there's, you know, it was really interesting because I could see the field changing. I could see that um, if the shelter movement didn't make some changes, look at how they delivered their services, look at, you know, also – Um, what work was being done, Um, and I know there was this real push for um, making sure that people were qualified to do their job. I could see that others were going to come in and take over the movement, hence why we changed our name from the Women's Refuge Group of WA to the Women's Council of Domestic Violence Services and Support, so that it could be other agencies that were doing work with men Uh, doing work with families as a whole, you know, counselling, DV, counselling service, DV support services, you know, all these different services that started about because uh, um, you would see like in the 2000, late 90s, 2000 up, government started investing much, much more money into the domestic violence sector. And that's when you saw the bigger welfare agencies starting going in and putting a bid in there for their money uh for to deliver these DV services. So and and there's some great stuff that's around now. Domestic Violence Court in Perth, which I had the privilege of you know being part of when it first, you know, um they were developing it. And um now it's been going for a long time. We have DV legal services. There's way more understanding, collaboration, and um and services uh, like the women's shelter movement, you know, like they're working closely together, doing more research, doing a lot of policy work, working closely with government. So it's it's just great to see where we're at today on a state, national and global level, you know, to way back in the 80s where we were fighting all the time and, you know, trying to, be, you know, have a bigger voice in, in, in the um, welfare
0: sector. But another thing that you were also involved in was around prevention um, with the Armadale Domestic Violence Intervention Project.
1: I really, really was committed to the work around that because it was something new, it was something different in the country. Um, I was really lucky enough to go over and do a few study tours in Duluth, Minnesota, when um, I think Dr. Alan Pence came out and it was referred to back then as the Duluth model. And people uh, know, you know, it's really well known in the sector and around, you know, the world about the, um, you know, pound control wheels we refer it to. And um, so, sorry, the- I'm going
0: to interrupt you for a second there. What is the Duluth model?
1: Oh, so it was about, you know, its behaviours, you know, around uh, family and domestic violence. It's another model of working with women. and But one of the things they introduced was the uh, – and we also, we did in Australia through the Armdale Domestic Violence Intervention Project was um, we did an audit, a safety and accountability audit. So those who were involved in ADVIP, which was – um, the police, the hospital, uh, department, what's now known as Department for Communities, the shelter, and uh, Relationships Australia. We basically broke into teams and then we went into each other's on site, to each other's different workplaces, and then looked at how did we, did the policies, work practices, how we did things in our organizations, did they, did they support women or did it block you know um make it more difficult for women when they were wanting to like for instance get a violent restraining order uh wanted to uh get support uh with their children you know um through all the different systems how did those did those systems uh, make it the pathway for when once women entered into having to go to different departments support services, did it enhance their journey or did it block it, make it harder and re-victimize the woman you know who was uh, experiencing d v So then we found out that you know also some of the ways the police you know write up their reports. It's the biases in their reports when those reports go, you know, that they could write it a bit differently that was that was more supportive and you could see that it was their own belief system that was, you know, you could see it highlighted in the reports.
0: Working with different agencies like that is fascinating and, and absolutely you get a lot of diverse opinions and, and see things you might not have seen. What are the difficulties of working in that way? or okay. some of the, um, you know, some of the issues that...
1: I can tell you that that even today, it's still an issue, like we're finding it here in Newman, and that is that whole thing around, you know, you can't share information, you know, those with statutory powers, like Department for Communities, police, can't share information around clients with, you know, the not for profit sector like ourselves the shelter and you know we might have a lot of information that will help the case you know um and the family in question but because we don't have statutory powers we're not a government organisation therefore we don't get privy for that to that information so that's that's still an ongoing battle it's been a battle for the last 30 years with advert, we were so lucky because we shared a lot of information. We had MOUs, the C everyone was so supportive and singing from the same page. Um, we the our patron for the Armadale Thomas Violence Intervention Project, um, we had two patrons. One was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and the other one um wh- who did a lot of her own work. Um her, she her husband was the the governor general for western australia so you know that was very helpful when we wanted to um look at challenging the uh, legislation around uh, confidentiality and things like that so we know that it can be done but that's what we find so difficult and also you know we still have to build those relationships on with other agencies that yeah we're not going to take over your turf we're not going to you know take over your funding you know like we're all in here together we're all about you know share wanting to share information what is the best outcome not only for the family but for the community as a whole
0: It's really interesting thinking about the complex system that is domestic violence and and all the things you have to do in that area. I'm also really interested in those one-on-one conversations and relationships that you've had that have really informed your practice as well. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the conversations that you've had or stories that you've had that have really changed the way you've worked?
1: Building relationships is absolutely vital in the work we do with clients and we forget sometimes that it's equally um, important to with our stakeholders and our and the people who we work with and it's ongoing because one of the things about living here in Newman is that is is the populations is is transit so you just started building some the inroads and really strong relationships, and then they're gone <laughs> within a year or two, and you have to start again. You start again. You start again, and that gets and you know. And if you don't have stuff that's documented, you don't have agreements that the next person's going to honor, and that's totally dependent on the people at the top whether they're going to support it or not. And it's totally dependent what's 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 the favorite. New thing at the moment because I've been around long enough to see a lot of different changes. Um, they're, they're what shall I say it? Same person, different dresses. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna put it down to to suit the occasion. What's the flavour of the month? It's really unfortunate, but it's true. being a lot around in the DV moment to see which ones become the shining stars. Oh, we're gonna really invest in this one because they're doing really well. And it'll be there for like five years, three years, and then oh no, what's the next shiny toy? You know, and it's keep on reinventing the wheel, but it's the same thing. It has it, you know, like I don't know how else to describe it, but I, I'm just gonna say that it's theme and variations. The theme is family and domestic violence. How government, how the not-for-profit sector, how the for-profit sector. Um, views that is is what impacts on at the end the people who we're working with. So it's really interesting here because um, I worked in the Kimberleys for seven years. Most of my working time has been in the metropolitan area, but living in a desert town where we have a strong Indigenous community who are still practicing their culture and beliefs, you know everyday life, you know, who are in surrounding communities who who are experiencing just, you know, poverty, you know, housing issues, You know, food insecurity, just lots of stuff like that. Then we've got all those big mining companies here. Then we've got you know our not-for-profit sector. We've got we've got businesses trying to survive here. And then you've got all the social issues around. You would have heard about you know, especially in the Pilbara and the Kimberleys, you know, young juveniles stealing cars, um, all those sort of things. You, You you're trying to work together, but you've got these big influences all around. And what I've learned is that everyone has to take responsibility. The mining company, you know, they have to take responsibility in ensuring and and the, and that they, they have made attempts to do that, you know, in building and strengthening our community. So how how do you do that? How do you do that? And it's about open, honest, frank communication having commitment that they that you know these families count these women and families who are experiencing family and domestic violence need our support and need us working all together i don't think people value that they don't value the 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 importance of relationship building they don't value that you know um that working together, working openly, you know, sharing your resources um, and also that being open to constructive criticism.
0: This is really hard work and trying to get people together in a complex issue like this, especially when domestic violence is often hidden violence, can be quite tricky. How do you do this as a social worker and a player in that community? I think
1: it's important for us, and you know, it's like anything. People watch you
0: if you if
1: you're walking, if you're walking the talk. If what you're saying has to match your actions, it truly does.
0: Can you give me an example of what that looks like? Like, what does it look like when someone's oh, okay. matching their actions, and when they're not okay. matching their actions?
1: I've only been a Newman for. I'm coming into my third year. I'm really invested in this community. So I will participate. Like, I sit on, I'm the chair for EPIS, which is a, a, a aged care service. I also um, am the president for the Newman Chamber of Commerce and Industry. I am the treasurer of the Rugby League Club. <laughs> New oh, right.
0: So you really build yourself into the community and bake yourself yeah. into lots of yeah. different conversations.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because you can't, you know, you have to understand where the other people are coming and you can't just work in isolation. You know, yes, we're in the area of family and domestic violence, but it happens in businesses. It's, it, it impacts on education. It impacts on the legal system. You know, the police, everyone, everyone is involved. Domestic violence, family violence isn't an isolated thing. It connects to everyday living therefore you then have to build your services around that create awareness campaigns do more proactive uh we we do a lot of campaigns like we lead the international women's day we do the 16 days of activism but we also do a lot of things with other agencies like at the moment all the workers is quite in the office here because all the staff are at the park doing cupcakes (laughs) you know right activities with the with the kids. So, yeah, we also run the Maru Night Patrol. This is what we do. We provide services, picking up kids on the street and giving them a meal and taking them home. And that service we provide from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. and on Saturdays, 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. So it's about your service is – You know, you got to get involved in the community, you got to get involved in building relationships everywhere because every opportunity who you're in contact with, you can raise their awareness around family domestic violence so that it's not seen as a shame thing, it's not seen as, oh, I don't want anyone to know. It's not hidden, it's not like um, oh um, those only those sort of people experience that, but it's about it happens in society, yes, and it's 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 something that we all have to take responsibility. We all have to work towards in terms of trying to build a safer community.
0: What would you say to companies who are really conscious that they will have people in their organisations who have experienced domestic and family violence at you know some point or another, and who may actually be the people who are who have survived, but they also could be the perpetrators in you know, some cases as well. What can they do to actually make the world safer for everyone?
1: So I think um, have an activity that shows their support that they are against family and domestic violence but will, you know, support those families in need. It's about changing some of the policies in their workplace that reflect, that are positive about um, those experiencing family and domestic violence. There's some support for women and men, and it'll be also, you know, um, our responsibility to uh, make sure that, you know, to provide that, that support, you know, for those businesses that, you know, don't know what to do. For example, we had a, a after-hours business event, and um, we had some government bodies there saying that um, we've got some money available put a submission in, when when it came to questions and answers, quite a few of the businesses said, we don't know how to do that. How do, how do we, we haven't got the time to do that, how, you know. So right. that for me, that was an easy thing because I just said to them, look, most of the not-for-profit sector know how to do that really, really well. And I know because this is a small town, you know people from the, the not-for-profit sector, so ask them to support and help. And they will. Yeah, and that's why I go back to that whole thing around which people don't, uh, you know, realise incredible value. It's about building those relationships, solid, strong relationships because through there you can influence, bring about change.
0: You work in a sector where when we think about your staff and yourself, you're constantly facing extreme conversations and extreme situations. What are some of the things that you do to support your own team and yourself in staying mentally healthy.
1: You're absolutely right. This is really traumatic. You know, we do a lot of team training. Training for me is so important because that's where you learn what your limits are. Because we tend to, as women, just keep on going, you know, oh, this needs to be done. We keep on taking things on. So... Um, that health and well-being is so important because we do forget that. I forget that. I'm going on holiday at the end of the month for three weeks. I'll be going to Samoa, New Zealand. So that's going to be my health and well-being. But you're absolutely right. The burnout rate is horrendous. The impact it has on women's health is is horrible. So I think it's the responsibility, not only of the worker themselves to know what their limits are, but it's the responsibility of organisations, agencies to put in place within policy and also in the culture that it's that um, your safety, health and well-being is really important to us.
0: Thank you so much, Irina. And it's lovely hearing you talk about it's a strengths based approach and the promise not only of these individual young people, um, children, and women, but also the promise of the sector when we all work together. Absolutely. A, you know, and take that abundance methodology, sorry, and have that abundance model that, you know, you are such a strong advocate of. It's been fantastic. Um, having you on the podcast um, hearing your story and your views as well and it's actually a real gift to have you in our community doing the work that you do as well
1: thank you thank you so much
0: oh look it's an absolute pleasure and thank you our listeners for listening and being here with us today on with not for If you'd like to know more about how you can make your world more inclusive, contact us on www.cfid.org.au or see our show notes. Until next time, this is Manisha Amin for the Centre for Inclusive Design.